Thank you uh, so much, James, for the invitation to be here. Also, to Louise for, for sourcing everything out. It's a great pleasure to have a chance to talk to you all about some of my work. Just a little word about the Oxford Internet Institute, if you haven't heard of it. We're just down the road about five minutes. Uh, we're an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary department. Uh, we, in fact, have long discussions about which word is the best or if there's any difference between these two words. Um, Specialising the study of social life online. We have computer scientists, physicists, but also lots of social scientists. I mean, I'm a political scientist. We're really interested in the study of news, especially online news, which is, of course, so, so important uh, for the spread and dissemination of news in the current period. So if you're a journalist fellow or someone who might be interested in this kind of thing, do feel free to come down and visit us or you know, send me an email if you'd like to hear more about our work. And if there's any way you think we might be able to collaborate, we're always really interested in that. Anyway, on to the topic of today's talk, the spread of news in the age of social media. This is um, a research project which I've been doing sort of for almost two years now. I'm almost slightly embarrassed to say, but it's never been kind of top priority. And I think everyone knows the experience of having the kind of second or third priority research, which is always third priority and never kind of pushes it up, uh, never kind of really kind of finishes itself. So this presentation has been a great opportunity to crystallize some of that and hopefully for me to kind of push it a bit further forward towards uh, completion. Um, let's start off with a few kind of premises why I'm interested in this as a political scientist studying news and studying news diffusion. The news media, of course, are well known for their kind of agenda setting power. I don't really need to introduce such a concept to this type of room, but broadly, what I'm speaking about there is the ability of the news media to tell uh, the public and to a certain extent politicians what topics they think are, of, uh, they think are currently important in the political climate. Now, the news media may also have the power to tell people what to think about them, or at least to frame the debate about what they think about them. But there's certainly widely recognized power that if the news media are reporting on a topic, let's say they're reporting on climate change, it's much more likely that the public and politicians are going to start to think about that topic than if the news media ignore and marginalize that completely. And this is one of the reasons that political scientists are so interested in what the news media puts out, so interested in the decisions of editors and journalists about what stories to report and write about, and what stories perhaps don't make it past what's sometimes called the gatekeeping process of the news media. Um, and th this, this agenda setting power is important and it's been documented in a wide variety of contexts. The decisions the news media make aren't self-evident. It's not taken for granted what is and is not a news story and different editors make different decisions. And there's, there's been a lot of work documenting how these types of decisions knock on onto various effects in the public consciousness. There's this so-called hypothesized mean world effect that uh, members of the public are systematically likely to overstate the, the possibility of being a victim of crime or something bad happening to them. And that this has sometimes been attributed not only, I mean, there's lots of branches of the media that you might kind of attribute this to, but it's partly been attributed to the fact that the news media, of course, like to report crime stories. It's one of the major areas of coverage for major mainstream news parties. There's also the uh, impact of mainstream political parties. Everyone knows the difficulty a new party faces in kind of getting going, passing a certain threshold where the mainstream media will start to cover them more, start to give them more space and more room to breathe. And this is the first election, the UK election coming up next week, which at least some of you have been voting in, where several kind of smaller parties have really kind of made that mainstream breakthrough. <coughs> Previously, it's been very, very difficult for them to get going. Um, there's the concept of insularity. This is often talked about in the US. I think more because the US has the most vibrant media studies departments in the entire industry, rather than perhaps because the US is especially insular. But 
mainstream media talk more about domestic issues than international issues in certain countries. And this shapes the way the public think about the domestic versus international uh, importance and level of policy agenda. And you, you could go on and on. This media agenda setting effect is a really crucial piece of power which the media have at their disposal to kind of wield. And this, so what's happening to that? Why am I interested in this if someone studies social media? This is the percentage of people who get daily information from different parts of the media, 2011, 2013. It's already getting slightly out of date. You can kind of see the broad pattern. 2011 is the dark purple, 2013 uh, the lighter pink. TV is still the most important daily source of information for people. This is somewhat of an inconvenience for me as someone who studies online media. TV is often the hardest thing to study and systematize for online media because it's much harder to automatically code and sample things that are going on in video than it's going on in print. But TV is still by far and away the most important. National papers, print, and radio have started to slip down the kind of pecking order. And you see the rise of Google as a search um, search tool, even though it's sort of slightly down 2011-13. And most importantly for me, places like Twitter and Facebook, big rises. They're saying in 2013, over 40% of the population in the UK, this is a UK chart, getting daily information from Facebook um, in the UK at the moment. Now, of course, this is about information, not necessarily just news information. You can get all sorts of types of information out of Google, and not all of it's going to be kind of news and media and agenda setting relevant. Nevertheless, it goes on to kind of highlight and show the importance of social media for the distribution of news to the wider public. And of course, many of you here are journalists who will be more than well aware of the power social media has to direct traffic to online versions of news websites, both national websites and especially local news websites. Increasingly, getting a high-value link on Facebook or Twitter can be a major, major driver of traffic uh, to these kind of online news websites. So what I'm interested in, I mean, you know, Taking into account the fact that social media is starting to play an increasingly important, increasingly dominant role in the way people get news information, and taking into account the fact that what people, what the type of people news, uh, type of news people receive is extremely important, is the social media agenda, if you like, going to be dis different, systematically different to the news media agenda? If we're the type of person that gets the majority of our news through social media, through our social media networks, are we going to experience a different type of news agenda? than if we would just get it from national media and the so-called traditional media outlets. Start off with a few things we kind of know about that, what we know already. We know, or at least I kind of think we know, as I was writing this presentation, I was getting kind of less certain about how to measure this. But there's good evidence to show that there's a lot of news content, traditional what you might call news content, on social media. I'm not sure, in fact, if it's the majority. I have a great way of measuring that, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is. The majority, let's say, large proportion of the news content shared on social media comes from a traditional source. It's a link in the UK from the BBC, from the Guardian, from the Telegraph, from the Times. Even though people are sharing news on social media, lots and lots of it's coming out of traditional news sources. Uh, there was a good study by uh, the Reuters Institute and, and the OIM paper, Grant, uh, Nick Newman, and, and Bill Dutton, who's sadly no longer at the OI, has moved to Michigan, um, wrote a lot about this uh, a couple of years ago, um, doing a very interesting study there, working on BBC, um, the, the logs from BBC News Service, and looking at how much traffic comes, comes into BBC News. And they, they called uh, traditional news content the lifeblood of conversation on social media. In, in, so even though we have these kind of social media networks, they're relying a lot on the content produced by traditional media to get the conversation going. So 
this would mean if we accept that, and I'm still thinking about the exact like, best way to measure that, but if we accept that, we'd say that the social media agenda is built from more or less the same raw material as the traditional news media agenda. It's built from the same kind of pool of stories. They're, they're still sharing the same stories which are published by traditional news media, largely. Second thing we know, we also know that journalists and audience preferences are a bit different. I mean, uh, again, I don't really need to kind of label this point to, to such an audience. Uh, Boskowski and Mitchellstein have just written this book, The News Gap. Some of you may have come across it, which I think is the most recent and perhaps the most systematic exploration of the difference between the things journalists think are interesting and important and like to put in high-value positions on the front page, perhaps I should say journalists and editors especially, and the things people like to click on on the front page, the things people like to read. They base this on the most read, these very common, popular, most read story bars that you see on the front page of many, many newspapers. We know there's a kind of divergence there, at least in terms of clicking and deep reading. I think, I'm not sure if any of you come across this book, but one of the criticisms of it is that it understates the extent to which people would like to skim major headlines and then click on one story for deep reading. And so, sort of kind of says, well, they could just ignore those. In fact, they're only interested in, in this content. Whereas a pushback to that is, well, you can read a lot of the major headlines with just a few sentences in the paragraph. And so you may still be interested in that. Nevertheless, I think intuitively we can kind of accept that there's always been this divergence and there's always been a type of story which journalists want to promote, think this is really important, great research, hard hitting, but hasn't attracted the traffic or attention that they think it deserves. Hence, this provides some kind of intuitive evidence that says, well, the social media agenda might be different. People, we know people are interested in reading and uh, different things to what the journalists are interested in pushing and promoting and publishing. Perhaps that kicks on into sharing as well. But of course, and I'll come on to this a little bit later, reading and sharing are by no means necessarily the same thing. Third thing we know already, don't worry, there are some slides on what we didn't know, but this is at least some stuff on what we know already, is that people have always shared news. Social, the kind of social element in news, the sociality of news, is by no means a new thing. The majority of people found out about Kennedy's assassination through word of mouth. And the same thing for the Challenger disaster. And the same thing even for 9-11. Even in the kind of era of both mass broadcast media and the internet, the majority of people found out about these major news events through word of mouth. And that's kind of intuitive if you think about it, because for such shocking events, uh, things like 9-11, you're, far, you're quite likely to bump into someone who's going to tell you about it before you get round to checking the news, which you might do once or twice a day. Nevertheless, it's always been a kind of instinct, a human instinct, to pass on certain bits of news and to pass it on to social relations. And hence, we, we already know a fair amount about why. There have been quite a lot of studies asking people, you know, why do you choose to pass on news? What types of news do you choose to pass on? You can separate it into sort of two main categories. Um, Lee and Ma have done some research on this, particularly in the context of social media. But uh, as I say, there's a kind of sort of 50-year literature doing it in the context of, of traditional media, especially in the US. We highlight kind of two main reasons for this. The first is sort of building up social ties motivation. If you can be sharing news, sharing interesting news, and perhaps the first person to share interesting news, then this makes you informed. It makes you in the know. And this is more, makes you more valuable as a social connection. It's a way of enhancing your status amongst um, your friends and connections. It might be a way of starting a new social connection. If you can share a bit of news with someone, you know, especially a colleague, a work colleague, academics do this all the time, right? When they share a paper with someone they, they don't know very well, and perhaps this is going to build up the connection a little bit. There's an obvious reason uh, to kind of do this. 
And the second reason which has been highlighted quite a lot is the ability to kind of understand and contextualize news events. If you share news, that's an opportunity to start a conversation about it. And perhaps that's going to help you understand a bit more about it if you're interested in discussing this with someone. Have you seen the news that someone did something? You know, it's a, it's a great conversation starter, especially, surely, in an institute such as the Reuters Institute. The majority of conversations must start like this, right? Um, so there's lots of good reasons why people share on a micro level. But, you know, these are micro level motivations. And that means, I think, and this is important for the purpose of my study, we can't hop directly from these micro level motivations to infer the macro level social news agenda outcome. And this is for a couple of reasons. First of all, they might be conflictual. So perhaps you want to share a bit of news because you don't really understand what it is. You don't understand what's going on. You want to talk about it. But then again, that's not going to help you see in, seem informed and in the know and smart and intelligent to the social tie you're sharing it with. So there may be a kind of conflicting motivation that's a question of which one wins out. And there are also, and this is something else I'll come on to in a second, suppressible. There may be lots of other reasons not to share news or not to share certain types of news, depending on the context, the environment you find yourself in. And, but for these reasons, I don't think we can hop straight from the micro-level motivations, which we know quite a lot about, to infer the macro-level outcome. What does the large-scale social news agenda look like? And that's the major motivation for my studies, that we need more information about this. So, yes, exactly. That's what we learned. How, how these micro-level decisions, um, which are done without the direction, of course, of a major editor, um, without the direction of kind of one central person telling people what you should share, though of course, uh, and I think they're very important, there are institutions such as BuzzFeed and other kind of sharing aggregators which, which have a, a really important effect there. How do these micro-level decisions about when people decide what type of news to pass on or not add up to a macro social media agenda, which I was saying earlier, it's becoming more and more important in terms of deciding the overall levels of news traffic and the overall types of news people read and access. So, we have a question we don't know, so we need data to answer that question. This is a very Oxford Internet Institute uh, approach to doing something. I'll just briefly describe the, the data collected for this study. I captured uh, new BBC News articles over a period of around two weeks by automatically observing the, the BBC News front page and going back once every hour or so, scraping off any new links, doing a little bit of uh, cleaning to make sure I had links which definitely pointed through to new articles, and adding them to an existing data set. Collected sharing counts for each of these articles uh, once an hour up to 48 hours after they've been published. So um, went to four different uh, social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Google Plus One. For each one, looked at how many times that article had been shared in the 48 hours after it had been published. I also got off a number of bits of information about the position of the article on the front page. Was it the top headline BBC story? Was it published a little bit lower than that? Or was it another kind of article which you can only find by scrolling down the front page? Did, did it have an image attached to it? So we know that images are, you know, for obvious reasons, more eye-catching, more likely to promote type of traffic. And also did some basic uh, topic categorization. This is something I want to work on a little bit more in the next stage of the project but try to classify these articles in terms of what they were about. With all this data, try and answer the question of how is the kind of mainstream news agenda likely to differ from the social media agenda? So now I'll talk about the results. I want to talk about the results in three kind of overarching categories. First of all, in terms of the speed of sharing. 
Second of all, in terms of different sharing patterns across networks. And third of all, in terms of the influence of what you might call social norms, which is the part I'm most interested in, but still kind of struggling, I think, to put my finger on exactly what's going on there. In each, in each one of them, I have a difficult to understand, complicated looking graph, uh, which I'm very pleased of. Again, <laughs> this is the type of thing the Internet Institute loves to produce. Um, first of all, ah, speed of sharing. Um, we talked about the micro-level uh, motivations for social news sharing. One of them was the need to build up social ties by making yourself seem informed and in the know. And what I think this leads to is the impact of sharing, sharing of news articles happens very, very quickly after their publication. These are four uh, social media sites, Facebook, Google+, One, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And this is the number of hours after initial posting that this link reaches a certain cumulative amount of shares, um, that, of the total amount of shares that it's going to get. So for example, uh, in Facebook, around 21 hours after its initial posting, this link achieves 90% of the total shares that it's ever going to get uh, in its lifetime. Uh, LinkedIn, by contrast, the 90% the, the, uh, barrier is crossed after just under 20 hours. For Twitter, which is the fastest sharing network, the 90% barrier is crossed around 13 or 14 hours, and the 50% barrier is crossed just one hour after sharing. In other words, these sharing patterns happen really, really quickly, and the, of the total amount of shares that any link gets, and of course, you know, different links get different amount of shares, on average, it gets the vast majority of them, you know, even on Facebook, which is the slowest network, less than a day after. And you can see the kind of second day in my observation window, the 48 hours, the line becoming very, very flat, meaning that very, very few new shares are added. This kind of makes sense, right? Again, we were saying, you don't, if you want to seem interesting and well-informed, you don't want to be the last person to share a bit of news. You don't want to say, hey, look at this really interesting bit of news, and then later on realize that everyone else already knew about this. You've got to get on there, and you've got to share quite quickly. What does that mean? Well, I think one of the main impacts of that is that there's a lot, to a large extent, people follow editors in deciding what to share. Some of the variables I mentioned about front page positioning, about eye-catching images, have a big impact on overall sharing counts. If you put um, a headline up here, it's likely to generate a lot, or more likely to generate sharing traffic than if it's one of these headlines down here. If it's got an image attached to it, like one of these ones here, then again, it's much more likely to generate sharing traffic. In other words, there isn't a big extent to which people get into a front page and sort of reformat it, change it around, and uh, follow different types of sharing pattern. The people, sharing patterns are to a large extent following the things that also the traditional media thinking are important. So that's the first thing, the time thing. Second thing, relevance. And getting into especially the differences between my different, what you might call communities, different social networks, Facebook, Google+, LinkedIn and Twitter. This is the hour of day that sharing takes place on each of these social networks, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn and Twitter. What you can see is that there's quite different patterns on different social networks. And again, this is kind of something we'd expect. The majority of social networks have very little sharing in the early hours of the morning. During the business day, by contrast, Twitter and LinkedIn have their major peaks in the kind of early part of the morning when you've just got into work, 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 11 a.m. <coughs> Facebook, by contrast, is much more a kind of afternoon activity, afternoon <laughs> evening activity. Perhaps you've just had lunch. This is the right time to share. Google Plus One more or less falls into that bracket. Though I should say that there's, there's a lot less data for Google because there's a less 
lot less sharing, so that the kind of the certainty of the dots kind of much much more spread out. But it's clear that on different social networks, there's kind of different patterns of sharing, different dynamics of sharing going on. Something also supported by the the slightly kind of uh, different speeds. Again, LinkedIn and Twitter, which are these business business type networks, or uh, I should say again, the, the ones where sharing takes place during business hours. And of course, you know, LinkedIn is definitely a professional network, and Twitter has strongly uh, professional overtones in, to a large extent. What's the impact of this? Well, the impact of this is that we can't just talk about one social media agenda. In fact, we have to talk about a slightly different social media agenda, depending on which social network we're talking about. So this is a comparison of articles in Twitter and Facebook. You can sort of see some of the titles, or at least kind of intuit them. I'll read a couple of ones out, which I think are interesting. The, the vast majority of the bunch of the articles don't get many shares on either side. Kind of stands for reason. And there's a group of articles which are well shared on both Twitter and Facebook. It's also quite easy to identify groups of articles which are well shared on Facebook but not well shared on Twitter and vice versa. And it's this and then this is what I was saying a little bit earlier about the topics. I'm still struggling to put my finger on exactly how I could characterize this difference. But one of the potential um, ways of talking about this is, and this is some people have mentioned this already, is that Facebook is slightly more emotive or um, somehow um, spectacular uh, disaster type network than, than, than Twitter. So Twitter, one of the major articles in, in the group was some, some things about sports being shared as they were happening, people talking about sports as, as they're happening. Whereas uh, on Facebook, and these are the ones that were really shared, well shared on Facebook but not so much on Twitter. It was about a military funeral for Lee Rigby. And this, will, you know, this was a couple of years ago. The articles were, were collected. So, by, perhaps most of you will be familiar with the story of Lee Rigby, who was killed in, in a terrorist attack uh, in London. And also a story about stem cell livers grown in a laboratory. Um, I need to do more work to see if there's any way I could possibly characterize this. Sorry to interrupt. Yes, am I right? There's a story about Belgium that we shared a lot? <laughs> this story about Belgium, and I need to go back to the underlying <laughs> data to find out exactly what the story was. It's well shared in both Twitter and, uh, and Facebook. It must have yeah. been some story. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, I don't know what was happening in Belgium at the time, but it was, uh, it was incredible. Uh, <laughs> I, I can tell you that. Third thing. And this kind of follows on from that a little bit. Um, this influence of social norms, and getting back to this news gap thing, which Boskowski and Mitchellstein means, means that even though having a strong readership base is obviously important for having a strong sharing base, because an article which is never read is never going to be shared, there's nevertheless a difference between the type of articles which are really well read and the type of articles that are really well shared. And this is kind of somehow captured in this graph. I'll come on to another graph, which which shows it a little bit better in, in a second. So this is the, the amount of times an article was read, sort of intuited by looking at the most read column uh, in the BBC front page. And this is the amount of times it was shared uh, on Facebook. And what you can see is, again, you've got this cluster of articles which, is neither, which are neither read nor shared. Some articles which are very well read and very well shared. Belgium is again there. <laughs> so, uh, now getting more and more curious about exactly what. <laughs> it's Belgium and, isn't it? <laughs> what could it have been? But then again, the, there's this list of articles, this kind of interesting group of articles, which is really well read. People really find them interesting. Baskowski and Mitchell start highlighted. But don't want to share them on social media. And then another group of articles, which are really well shared. People want to be associated with sharing these articles. 
but people didn't actually find it that interesting to read them at all. Um, that, that it was somehow more interesting to share the, than be read. And I'll go into a little bit more about what, what those could be. So this is a rough kind of topic categorization of different articles in terms of the amount of sharing and the amount of reading. You can see this broadly uh, red 45 degree line. If the dot is above the 45 degree line, it's shared more than it is read. If it's below the 45 degree line, there's much more reading than there is sharing. And if it's approximately on the 45 degree line, then it's about read and shared in kind of equal measure. You can see these things about social welfare, about science and technology, attract much more sharing than they do for their readership, much more sharing than they should proportionally for their readership. Whereas other things, and this is a kind of accident and emergency, natural disasters, a landslip kills a lot of people, there's a fire, and all this type of thing, can be really well read, but very poorly shared. Um, if I pick out, and this perhaps highlights it the clear, most clearly, the top, uh, top six articles, the top shared stories with below average readership, and the top read stories which, with below average sharing, here yeah, I think you can see quite a clear pattern. These are types of articles which are really well read, but no one wanted to share them. The pensioner dies after being hit by a car, spikes on a beach, three admit paying someone for sex, UK teenager feared down in France. This type of visceral story, which either relates to some kind of terrible event, or usually relates, uh, relates to some kind of terrible event that's either a kind of crime or natural disaster. Editors and journalists have always known attracts, for some reason, public's attention. People want to read about these articles, want to know about what's going on. But they're very unlikely to be shared. And again, this kind of stands to reason. You don't want to be the person that widely shared, pensioner died after being hit by a car. This isn't a useful type of news which can help you enhance your social status or ne network profile. You're the first person to realize someone's been run over. <laughs> and it's not, it's not the type of news that, news that needs a lot of understanding or contextualization. You don't need to have a long chat with your friend over a bottle of wine. What does this mean? Someone was run over by a car. How does this change the way I think about the world? If you look at the sharing stories, and these are the sharing stories with below average readership, people are more likely to want to share them, even you could sort of say, than to want, the re to want them to read them. You've got a couple of articles there about sports, but you also have a lot of what you might call interesting and socially important articles, and these come back to the type of articles which journalists, I think, are most interested in saying are politically important. There's one about um, the right to die, the, the euthanasia. One about synthetic meat being grown in the Dutch lab. One about a disaster in Syria, but a kind of, you know, a kind of disaster which you might donate money to, or a kind of worldwide disaster. Um, and I think, it's, again, it's easy to see more here how this story fits into the mo micro-motivation of wanting to share. Because if you can be the type of person, perhaps it's just reporting about sports, but these type of interesting, socially important articles might well add relevance and value to your social profile might well be the type of thing that you'd be interested in sharing that would kind of enhance your social network. Conclusions. What, what's the impact of all of this? Well, as I said in the beginning of the results, social media, social news, you might call it, and social, certainly the social news agenda has broad similarities to online media. People talk, in fact, about the, the intermedia agenda setting. There's no sense in which the social media agenda is totally different and distinct from the traditional media news agenda. But I think within this kind of broad similarity and the fact that the majority of the agenda seems to be drawn from traditional news articles, there are a couple of important differences. 
And first of all, talk about different communities, different social networks being more or less interested in different things, being sharing things at more at different times. And we can also talk about the important groups of articles which are read but not shared. And this means that a purely social news, if people only got their news from social media, which is a kind of category of, of news consumer, which is increasingly being researched about, people have written uh, a report on this, this idea of uh, just waiting for your friends to deliver news to you, there will be certain types of news that's filtered out. And in particular, we're highlighting this kind of accident, cata catastrophe, or crime, especially, I think, sexual crime, will be kind of filtered out because people don't want to be seen as sharing this. And this might sort of damp down this, this kind of mean world idea. If you're looking at the news on social media, even though there's clearly important, difficult issues being tackled, there might be certain types of articles such about crime which, which are filtered out and then perhaps alter some of your perceptions about what's going on in the public agenda. A couple of words about next steps, um, <coughs> selfishly uh, to this audience. It would be nice to have more better data. Uh, and lots of people in the room have this more better data. Um, does anyone want to share it with me, especially as we're talking about social sharing? Uh, lots of my, the, the whole research is based on automatic observation of the BBC News website. So I have to kind of guess or infer from the, the most read list which stories are being read and for how long. I basically calculate what position an article is on the most read list and how long it stays in that position. Um, and then give each article a total score. But if an article never makes it on the top 10 list, then it gets a score of zero. So there's a lot of articles in that kind of zero category. Whereas, of course, uh, news media organizations have perfect, precise information about how all these articles are read. The sharing information is better, in fact, because the, the most social networks are very happy to give precise information about what's shared. Nevertheless, I don't know a great deal, well, I don't know anything, about who exactly is doing the sharing. It would be nice to dig into that more, to try and extract out, in particular, some of the effect of journalists themselves sharing their own stories, which is an obvious uh, thing to do, um, um, and compare that with you know, what you might call organic sharing, or the sharing that's actually happening by, um, by the public. It would be nice to tackle more news outlets in more countries, but only tackle the BBC which has a specific and particular position in, in, the, in the news media environment. In the online world, the BBC uh, has a lot of credibility, you might say. It's often used to settle debates and things like Wikipedia, is used as an authoritative source. But this means it might attract a certain type of news consumer, and that you're only getting kind of part of the picture there if you focus solely on this one public service broadcaster. And it will also be interesting to look at more countries. I've given this presentation in, in other contexts. I gave it in Royal Holloway, um, a, a few months ago, and there someone from Eastern Europe put their hand up and said, this sounds totally wrong, because in Eastern Europe we love to share stories about crime and disaster. Uh, we want to be the person that passes on this, this terrible news, and all I see on Facebook is, you know, crime and emergency and death and violence, um, which I found really surprising, and I, that's, that was her perspective. I don't know if that's systematic, but it may well be, you know, I'm just looking at one country and one context. We like to look at more. And also to look at kind of sharing within communities. I'm starting to talk about here is the sort of overall aggregate social media agenda. But what, one criticism of that, fair criticism, would be to say, well, no one really experiences the aggregate social media agenda because everyone's social media agenda is different depending on your own friends. And each person makes an effort to kind of cultivate a different social network 
partly on the basis of what news is coming to them. So it would be nice to find a way of, of nuancing this kind of top-level picture with more details about different communities or how it might be different even within kind of subsections of Twitter and Facebook, for instance. So you can kind of question, is the aggregate social media agenda definitely the right thing to be studying? But that's all uh, for another day. That's it for me. Thank you so much. Now happy to take